Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. If you got a tummy ache or you don't feel right. Or if you have a nasty rash keeping you up at night. Don't worry, don't worry about a thing. Don't worry. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from unceded Kulin Nation land. Tonight's conversation takes us further across this ancient continent to Yatmitung country in the Yerato Alpine region, where my guest this evening lives, works and adventures. We respectfully acknowledge their elders and their continuous connection to lands, water and sky since time immemorial. Australia is home to the world's oldest continuous living culture and we have a really important opportunity in the upcoming referendum, the date of which is due to be officially announced by the Prime Minister next week. This is once again your reminder to start having conversations and listening with an open heart. So, welcome back for another night of Radio Architecture with Ilana Rasbash. My guest this evening is a Mount is a mountain and winter sports fanatic calling in all the way from Falls Creek. Andy Mero is the founder of Sendit.Archie. He holds a Bachelor of Architectural Design from our alma mater, RMIT University, and is a registered building designer. With more than 25 years of extensive experience in the construction industry, specialising in alpine environments, Andy has gained great knowledge and understanding of working with the local people, authorities, council and the natural environment. More recently, he has been engaged in public consultation and working with within the urban design landscape, as well as collaborating with notable Melbourne practice, NMBW. Welcome, Andy. Welcome to the program. Hey, Alana. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm so glad you could dial in and join us on the last few days of winter. Has it been up there for you? How's the season been this year? Yeah, well, firstly, so excited that you asked me. Um, I think it's an amazing thing that you've got going here. So very, very happy to be on the show. Um, yeah, winter's been a bit of an odd one for us. It's been, um, it, it was off with a, a flying start. We had a couple of big dumps, which gets everyone pretty excited early on in the piece. And then we've only had very minor top-ups uh, over the last couple of weeks. And we're... Just lucky that it's been cold enough to maintain a bit of snow cover. Um, so, yeah, it's getting pretty warm, though. So, I'm, you know, fingers crossed we get a little bit more before the end of the season. Our fingers crossed for you, too. And I'm sure we'll touch on the issues affecting the high country and the snow season and our climate 
later tonight, but the question I want to ask, and I ask all my guests this one to start with, is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? I'd have to say um, my grandparents were Italian immigrants um, who lived in Best Street, North Fitzroy, and uh, they had um, just a little Victorian with a tiny little front garden which had every imaginable vegetable in it growing. It was just part of part of the process for them living there. I love that. Um, yeah, it was fantastic. I was actually just telling someone the other day about the clothesline. It was just a big cable strewn across the backyard and they had this massive long stick that they used to prop everything up where it could catch the wind. And there was a guy in an old, like, postal van who used to drive out to the front of the house um, with live chickens hanging upside down. And, yeah, it was quite the scene. So, um, yeah, fond memories of Fitzroy. Fantastic. So what, what pulled you then from Fitzroy and the city life to the high country? How did you end up moving there? Um, so mum was born and bred on Flinders Island um, out in Bass Strait. And she was always a surfer and along with surfing uh, usually goes hand in hand with surfers discovering the snow and the mountains. Um, so she became the skier in the family. And uh, when I was about 10, so back in 81, I think it was, mum and dad both made the, the uh, early adoption of the tree change and uh, left the big, uh, big smoke of Croydon where we were living on the outskirts of Melbourne. Uh, and ventured up to uh, Mount Beauty, which is oh, it's about three and a half, four hours outside of Melbourne and about half an hour from Falls Creek where I reside now. That explains how you got the adrenaline junkie in your jeans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got mum to thank for that and she spent the rest of her life worrying about it. So. I think it's really amazing that you've been able to start a practice out of Falls Creek and Mount Beauty and have that local knowledge and experience and your passion tie together with your profession and, and your talent in that space as well and really um, make a career out of it in, in that spot, in that location is really amazing. Yeah, well, it's, it's quite funny because, I mean, obviously I've you know, adapted to the environment that I work in, um, being Falls Creek and, um, you know, most of my work now is above the snow line, so we're becoming quite um experts in snow design and dealing with those issues but the the first driver for me um was it in the off season skiing's always a funny thing you can find jobs during the season but the off season's always an interesting thing and building work is is huge because you only have a very limited window of opportunity to do to do building work and um so i i grew up um going through carpentry and then into building um, but there was always that typical divide between the builder and the architect, which um, I've always been passionate about design. And I just, it, it was always in my mind to bridge that, that, that distance between the two so that you could have um, not only an architect that speaks common builder language, which is quite often pretty colourful, um, but also the other way, you know, pull builders or carpenters or whoever it is working on the site more behind the scenes and let them understand what's involved in um, getting it to a certain level. Uh, you know, documentation is always a funny thing where they say, 
oh, how, how do they think we're going to build that? You know, and I think um, the early adoption of builders or contractors into the project and being able to work through it um, has fundamental benefits and especially in an environment like ours. That different procurement approach is really critical to your innovation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm finding that more and more the projects that we do, um, you know, we're, we're referring back to builders more regularly, more often, uh, because quite often they've found sort of new and inventive ways to, to deal with the, the unique environment that we're in. So it's, it's fundamental of having them part, part of the project from an early process. Are you able to describe some of these cool solutions or innovations that have come out of your work? Yeah, well, so one side of it, especially for us up here, um, is like window flashings. It sounds so simple, but if you get a window that's not flashed properly, um, it can whistle at night with the wind that we get up here. Um, obviously, we have condensation issues, um, you know, so there's, there's a number of um, sort of fundamental things about being so exposed and, and you know, um, when a building is exposed to the environments in that way, the simplest of things like a window flashing can um, be a, um, a very annoying factor if it's not done right. can make or and break it. Yeah, yeah, it can. And on the flip side of that, um, you know, I drew upon um, some of my connections that we had at RMIT actually um, in this one one project that we've been working on is a restaurant on top of the mountain and uh, we referred it back to Roland Snooks actually at RMIT and asked whether or not he could um, find a way of getting his agents and scripting to behave like snow uh, which Roland was extremely excited about doing and we ended up having a program that we can now run across the, our roof forms to see where the snow buildup would be. Oh, that's amazing. For, for our listeners, this is particle agent modelling in, in 3D, which means it's fake snow. You've got fake yeah. snow falling on top of your 3D model roofs to test how the real snow is going to pile up. Yeah. Wow, it was a fantastic phenomenal. innovation that we... We'd love to push a bit harder in the future um, on that specific space because um, it's a bit of an unknown factor. And obviously, there's a there's a great deal of information in uh, alpine architecture throughout Europe and America where they've been dealing with it for many generations. But here in Australia, it's still quite new. Um, we've adopted a lot of the old European ways, but our snow doesn't behave like European snow does. So... It's quite destructive. We get a lot of melt freeze. So um, for the listeners, that's, you know, warmer days than you would get in Europe or America, uh, melts the snow. And then as the colder temperatures set in at night, it just freezes at rock solid. So we deal with more weight. Um, and when I say more destructive snow, it forms big ice blocks on roofs, which can tear, you know, flues, aerials, um, fascias off so yeah it's it's quite a different um different beast here in australia let alone if there was it was to overhang on people or something so there's so many safety concerns that come up for you as well isn't there yeah it is and everything we take to planning actually has um snow shedding diagrams on there to ensure that we're doing our best to sort of um yeah look after public safety 
snow shedding diagrams. <laughs> this is like amazing to talk about, Andy, because we're so used to our sun studies and our overshadowing and yeah. all the other things architects to do work in, in the city or even in the in the country at lower elevations work through or people just putting in their extension renovation through planning but snow shedding diagrams that's a really yeah. great phenomena it is and and you have to remember too like as part of that sort of shedding diagram quite often we design around a high tide mark so in general that's about half a meter of snow so in most seasons, I mean, the engineers, they, they work on a metre of snow um, to try and get their sort of uh, weight factors right. Um, but when we're looking at thresholds of doors or entries or balconies, uh, window heights, what needs to be caged and protected, what doesn't, generally we work off of average sort of base of about half a metre of snow around the building. And um, taking it back to sort of my early days of living in, um, in the village and skiing around so many of the buildings here were a prime opportunity to be able to ski onto the roof and jump off in good snow conditions so it's always a factor in the back of my head like how skiable is this building <laughs> like in the warren miller movies yeah exactly <laughs> the skiability test i love that so much yeah it's it's a great it's a great thing especially the village here in falls creek is quite unique because um We've got um, sort of multiple terraces that the village is built on. So obviously behind the buildings uh, in a good snow season, you get a lot of snowpack and you, um, it, it sounds crazy, but you can actually um, ski straight onto the roof of some of the buildings, which again is a, a bit of a public safety factor. So many considerations in extreme and amazing climates. A bit beyond the technical, sure. what are some of the other challenges that um, the high country communities face and particularly um, design and development and construction faces? Yeah, well, um, so just just following on from that is obviously um, you raised it earlier in the intro, just the climate change issues. Um, you know, like we're really lucky our current lift company is very focused on snowmaking, um, which is, is pretty natural in its process. It's basically just forcing water through high-pressured sprinklers. Uh, it freezes, falls on the ground, you've got snow. Um, so um, that's, uh, that's a good thing to have a lift company who's very interested in keeping snow on the ground. However, our, our season gets shorter and shorter. So the lead into the season, you're never really guaranteed. Uh, uh, traditionally, it used to be Queen's birthday, opening weekend. But the first two to three weeks of the season, um, you know, ever, ever since I was a kid, is very unpredictable. Uh, and now we find our seasons are getting shorter and shorter, uh, which is great for the diversity of the high country as far as uh, – all the other offerings are beginning to become more explored. Um, you know, yourself being a, an adventurer as well, that uh, hiking, you know, riding, cycling, fishing, all of those sorts of things are, are big ticket items up in the high country as well, which is which is great. Um, but yeah, it is, a, it is a definite issue. Uh, in Falls Creek, we also have a very unique village where the, we try and maintain snow on our roads through the village. Uh, which allows ski and ski out access. And this season already, unfortunately, about three or four weeks ago, we had to clear the snow off the roads just 
wasn't able to maintain that base that we normally require to be able to be ski in, ski out. And this is a problem that's going to sort of um, reoccur in the future, obviously. That brings up issues around transport, transportation of people, you know, where they could ski in and ski out. How do we deal with the transportation of uh, people through the village? Um, unfortunately, at the moment, we're just using uh, petrol burning vehicles. Um, but hopefully in the future, you know, that will either be um, replaced by, uh, I mean, one one avenue that one of the old developers of Falls Creek uh, tried to push as a um, possible solution for transportation throughout the village, which they also do use in Austria, uh, is a series of conveyor belts, you know, which have been very successful in Austria, moving people from terrace to terrace around the village. So. Uh, it'd be good to see the vehicles sort of reduced. Like a scaled-up magic carpet. Yeah, exactly. Scaled-up magic carpet that you can carry your luggage on. <laughs> that, that, that's so cool, but also very confronting to hear about the anomaly that you've already had to clear the roads and August isn't even over. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's um, I, unfortunately, I'd like to say it's a bit of a rarity, but uh, towards the end of uh, August, you could almost you know, um, be guaranteed that some of the roads would need to be cleared. So, yeah, th that's, that's one of the issues we face up here. One of the other big ones that I'm quite involved with um, at the moment is uh, key worker housing, which is not unique to Falls Creek. Um, it seems to be an issue everywhere. Uh, but traditionally, on the mountains, you get... Uh, a large developer comes in, uh, takes a large parcel of land, puts apartments on there, sells them for a premium, uh, and that's it. They sort of walk away, job done. Uh, the issue that we're facing is that there are no smaller uh, smaller places for people to buy, just for um, even a series of locals that would come up during winter to stay, uh, the transient community that comes in and out every season. Uh, or even the diehard locals that live here and try and, you know, make this their home. Uh, there's no kind of, um, everyone's in some version of an apartment. Uh, that usually, the main reason being uh, is that the costs for leases is generally quite high. Uh, there used to also be a, a way of measuring leasable area of the building, uh, which was called FICA back in the day. And that actually governed a lot of development because you needed to, uh, you know, have a lot of floor area that you could lease or sell um, to afford the leases. So generally smaller parcels of land, smaller buildings uh, have not been a thing in the high country, uh, which is something that we're looking to try and change uh, not quite the tiny house, but that's been thrown on the table as well. But somewhere in between, something that's affordable, that's uh, maybe prefab, um, is a is a great option for up here because we have to wait till the snow's off the ground before we start construction, uh, and then a month generally before it starts snowing, we need to be off the building site. So our actual productive window for construction is only eight months. Uh, so that sort of throws a whole other element to to what can be built. That's a rapid fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also really pushes you to think sustainably in terms of small, efficient footprints. 
less less cargo, less transport. Yeah. So I mean, this this summer was a, a, a prime example. We had um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the the big landslip we had at Bogon Village, which yeah. cut our access off. Yeah. So what what used to be in half an hour sort of trip from Mount Beauty to Falls Creek ended up being about an hour and a half, nearly two hours to go around through Midamida, which was quite a quite a diversion. Uh, but that also threw up a lot of questions to our local resort management on waste waste removal, um, the carting of goods, everything that was sort of taken for granted as being a short trip up and down the mountain, uh, all 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 of a sudden became a logistical nightmare. So. Um, yeah, they're, they're busy reassessing all of that for this construction summer. Have they been able to determine what caused that landslip officially? Not officially. Uh, we, there hasn't, to my knowledge, there hasn't actually been a sort of uh, an official reasoning uh, behind it. But there was there was quite a bit of um, sort of human intervention up above that slip area. They They did have a dam which was holding water. Uh, for the property below, uh, which is Bogon Village, uh, for the, it's a, it is an actual village. Um, the dam itself didn't seem to be the cause, but there was some suggestion that um, uh, quite a few geotech holes had been drilled up there over time. Whether or not they contributed was one theory, but no, I, I don't know conclusively what, what the issue was. Well, thank you for sharing that and giving us a bit of an insight and a feel for what it's like up in the high country. Before we jump into discussing projects, I want to let the listeners know that they, of course, can text questions in for Andy as always. And the number is 0493213831. And if you miss that, you can find it under the Contact Us link on the Instagram, the handle being, of course, at Radio Architecture. So give us a follow and there's already some photos uh, from Andy's life in the high country up there and we'll be more photos uh, after the show as well. I I wanted to ask about Cloud9 that you're doing with NMBW. Tell us a bit about that project. Yeah, so Nigel Bertram, one of the directors of NMBW and myself uh, were introduced uh, by Peter Bennett, the photographer, architectural photographer. Um, out on Mount Mackay, backcountry skiing, as all sort of uh, introductions should be. Uh, and Nigel and I um, struck up quite a friendship. And I, I, do, I was only freshly out of university when I first met Nigel and asked if he would uh, be my mentor, uh, which he's uh, still working out with me. And he's been an amazing source of information uh, right the way across the board, especially with his uh, links still to Monash University. Um, and w I basically um, was approached by a local group up here that are called Traverse Alpine Group. They, ha they have now a number of interests on the mountain, uh, including most of the restaurants. Uh, Cloud9 is the biggest restaurant on the mountain and it's out on the top of the mountain, so it's very exposed. Um, and the one of the directors of TAG approached me and said, uh, do, you, do you have any ideas about this building? You've been walking in and out of it long enough. Uh, he liked our ideas. So um, I asked Nigel and NMBW if they'd be happy to join us uh, on this project and work in collaboration together, which we've done over the last couple of years. 
It's about to. It, it did do. We did some upgrades to the services last uh, summer period, uh, getting it ready for the additions this year and next year. Um, but it's it's one of those classic examples of a building that was sort of. Uh, they built a chairlift first, and then they thought a lot of people seem to be congregating on the side of this chairlift, huddling out of the wind. So then they bought it, uh, a small shelter, and then the shelter started selling, you know, hot dogs and coffee. And the shelter got bigger as the chairlift did as well. And and now it's at about a capacity of 300 patrons, and we're we're going to double it. But what's really important about this particular project is it is also a public refuge from um, the harsh conditions that can uh, come with the ski season up here. So we do see as much as it is a restaurant and we'll be servicing the customers like a restaurant, um, it is also somewhere to take, you know, seek shelter. And that's been um, really interesting in, in the way we need to deal with it, access in and out. And there's a whole other set of problems going back to what we were saying before about sort of designing for the Alpine region. I mean, you think about when you walk into a restaurant um, normally, you throw your jacket over the chair or you hang it by the door or somewhere somewhere um, nice and close. When you walk into a restaurant in the snow, generally you've got a helmet, goggles, ski boots, children in tow, gloves. So all of that sort of needs to be understood on how a restaurant on the top of a mountain operates. So um you know tactile flooring uh, under ski boots there's only a limited amount of floor stock available in australia that you can use that's non-slip so those sort of um, details are really quite important in in designing um on top of the mountain what are some of the key kind of design elements or the some of the other big big ideas well you did you speak, spoke of shelter but how is that expressed in the building? What were some of the key key design elements there? Yeah, so uh, one was something I touched on earlier about that high tide mark. So we elevated the main entry so that people weren't forced to walk up and down stairs externally where you can get ice and a lot of issues. So we raise, we raise the high tide mark, use the ramp system to get up to that high tide mark. And then we use that transition to the existing floor. We, we do that inside where people have uh, nice dry floors, handrails, and can move about the building a lot easier. So that was one of the key features on the new southern entry. Uh, another key feature was actually something that I experienced and uh, one of the directors of TAG also experienced when we were in Europe. Uh, one of the restaurants we went to at Aksumalitzum, um, just outside of Innsbruck, it has this amazing, uh, what they call a winter garden, where the exterior cladding uh, in this particular instance was retractable. And on those amazing days, you still get the shelter of having a building around you, but you can feel the breeze on your face. So uh, we've adopted that and we've got a winter garden scenario uh, at the very north face of uh, our building, facing Down Valley. But that also brings up uh, new issues because our predominant storm fronts come from the northwest. So, whilst we like to be open uh, and feel the environment, we also need to be well protected. So that's um, that's been a, a really interesting one. And we actually use local engineers that have an office in Mount Beauty, uh, as I mentioned before. That's thirty kilometres from from the ski resort, uh, and those guys. Um, 
have really been tested as well in putting their thinking caps on. And, you know, you've got the whole issue of wind and lift when you open a building in the facade. Like an aeroplane wing. Exactly, yeah. So, and actually the history of Cloud9, one of the earlier versions of the restaurant, uh, it has a chairlift which goes into the building next to the restaurant and uh, early days before they were sort of really understanding uh, how strong the environment was up there as far as the winds go. They shut one of the doors that had the chairlifts coming in but still had one of the other ones open and uh, unfortunately because of the wind pressure it blew one of the walls off the building. So yeah, we've got, uh, we definitely didn't want to have any scenarios like that so we're, we're, we're checking, double checking and triple checking with our engineers on this particular build. It's amazing the kind of innovation that you're able to achieve now as the technology and the 3D modeling that's available to us is catching up and, and pushing ahead so you can do your snowfall. The wind modeling and wind tunnels have been around for a long time, but every, yeah. everything is r- rapidly digitizing in a way that helps you push what's possible in the high country. It's not these European chalets. You're able to carve out an, a sense of an Australian alpine architecture. Yeah, it is. And, and just stepping back a little bit to what I said earlier about the builder involvement, you know, like our guys, our builders up here that we've been using are being encouraged to have uh, Revit licenses where they can jump in and view what it is that we're seeing on the screen as far as um, the, the complete form. Because I think for those guys, they're always working in 2D and quite often, you know, a series of 3D images down to the finest detail or the whole building itself actually, wrap, you know, gets to wrap their head around it. And I think what's really unique, um, again, uh, as I touched on earlier, what's really unique about Australia, Australian Alpine architecture is just the abusiveness of the snow. Like it is really quite, um, it can be quite destructive. And, you know, so often people sit in the Alpine environment in, in an apartment or at a restaurant or, um, you know, and see the, the massive members that are placed throughout the build uh, and sort of wonder why doesn't that isn't that a bit over the top? But when you've got a, a meter and a half of really solid, solid heavy snow over the top of you, uh, it can have a lot of weight on it. So, but there's there's been some interesting um, attempts at sort of identifying what the Australian Alpine architecture is. Especially Dinner Plain is a perfect example of where they had a very quite stringent building code, and you know. Uh, local building code for that particular development and it's it's quite interesting um, what's been done up there and I love seeing uh, especially there was one of the Italian architects his name eludes me at the moment but love seeing the interpretation between the lines of when when there is some sort of um, formal guideline set in place like how far can you stretch that that's it's quite interesting of, that's a role of good design right carving out the space for the opportunity, for the possibility, for the magic, for the beauty. It's not just plugging in some facts. And I think AI is is never going to be able to compete really with the authorship and of an architect. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I was blown away. I was pretty latecomer to, to architecture being in the field now for six years, I guess you could say. Um, 
So when I was at uni, which wasn't that long ago, as you as you know, um, it, it blew my mind where the digital sort of realm and AI and uh, even uh, Roland and his agents um, were, were heading in architecture. It really, really blew my mind. But the simplicity of, you know, the master stroke <laughs> is something that I don't think AI will, will ever be able to, to understand. You know, like you say, it's just it, it's the finesse and the touch and the understanding in a different way that, yeah. And translating the human condition and translating human love into a built form, into a building, that's really some of the most powerful moments in architecture and that's where I think the machines won't be able to come for that that space will be forever protected but I'm not surprised that having Nigel Bertram as, from an MBW as a mentor you're really interested in this idea of craft and quality and detail yeah yeah quite often I mean now that Nigel and I um, have been working a little bit together um, it's quite often me saying to Nigel I think that's enough tests now Maybe we should maybe we should adopt that. And Nigel's quite often saying, one more. I think we could test it this way. That's your builder so, hat sneaking out. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's been great. You know, that's it's an amazing attribute of what an MBW does. Um, and to I've, I'm so privileged to be able to work on um, sites with those guys. And it's led on to, we've got a few other um, projects in the pipeline, which we can't sort of say too much about at the moment, but... Um, it's led on to a really healthy relationship and um, Nigel's actually reasonably new to the snow as well. So, um, you know, bouncing off each other with uh, his honest approach and my sort of uh, knowledge of how it can go wrong, uh, I, you know, I think it puts us in a nice sweet spot to deal with the issues up here. It's all about relationships. And then what a, an amazing result you're getting for the users and people at Force Creek. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a this is another thing that, um, you know, it's quite amazing about uh, life above the snow line is that we've got this insane infrastructure that's built during the summer periods and most of it's not occupied during summer, um, which I, I still walk around, you know, I've, I've sort of grown up here for many years obviously and um i still walk around in bewilderment that all of this infrastructure uh, is just not being utilized uh in its full capacity which kind of leads me back to um bogon village that we were speaking about um bogon village is a pretty unique village it, it was the uh the workers camp that was set up to do the hydro scheme uh when they built the first power station uh, I think we've got four now um, from Falls Creek down to Mount Beauty. And um, it was sort of discarded by the SEC of the day and gone, it went out to privatisation. They've always owned it, the government, um, but it did sort of get let privately, the houses that are in the village. There's also an outdoor camp, a school camp, which sort of keeps the village um, moving, if you like. And there's a couple of uh, in-residence artists that are there as well. But just recently, they uh, AGL, the owners of it, were sort of teetering on closing the village uh, for good. Uh, this, the school camp would have had to remain, 
uh, but the rest of the residents uh, were thinking about turning it over and, and knocking most things down. It just blows me away that we have this kind of um, complete opposite situation 15 kilometres up the mountain where people just can't find affordable housing. Uh, I have been told that a larger developer in Melbourne uh, has made an offer on Bogon Village with the potential of turning it into staff accommodation uh, all, for all year round for key worker housing. So, yeah, we'll have to watch this space, but it sounds pretty exciting that someone identified this kind of idle village set uniquely in the mountains, um, right on the side of an amazing lake and 15 kilometres from the ski resorts and 15 kilometres the other way to, you know, beautiful um, produce restaurants, wineries in the valley, um, that something finally might be done with it over the next couple of years. Oh, fingers crossed. And especially in order to support all this economy and all this activity in the snowfields, it's exactly as you said, it's key worker housing. People need somewhere to live. And when we talk about the housing crisis, it's actually the people that do the jobs that keep society running are the ones that can't get a place to live. That's right. Most of the guys I know that work in the construction industry up here all base themselves in Mount Beauty where they can afford a house which is crazy. They, they drive up and down the mountain every day for work. And how much petrol does that burn? Yeah, too much. I wouldn't want to think about it. <laughs> that image, though, of the empty ski resort in summer, I always find that very spooky. It's a very um, bizarre image to look at and the chairlifts with no snow. It, it is quite bizarre, but as a kid, it was just an amazing playground, you know, like um, – yeah, it was really quite odd just running in and out of between buildings and, you know, making little mountain bike trails and all those sorts of things. It was uh, quite a unique experience to grow up as a child up here. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's really special. Well, the mention of chairlifts is a great segue into the Eagle Express chairlift project that you did. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that one? Yeah, sure. So um, the company of the time... Uh, Merlin, I think it was, was the lift company owners at the time. Uh, again, they approached me, heard that I had uh, been out of university for about a month, which was really quite lucky through a, a builder friend of mine. Um, they approached me and said the same thing as uh, basically Cloud9 did, said, you know, obviously you've been riding this old chairlift for so many years. Uh, maybe you can sort out a few fundamental issues that uh, the lift operators have. Um, so we went about designing really sort of um, tiny little cabins for the um, chairlift operator to work out of um, uh, with a sort of – there was two main factors that we were looking at in our design philosophy with doing them was one was protection of the operator so that they could be protected from the wind on really poor days, which, you know, quite regularly happens as – as a work-safe requirement, they need to stand out there ready to assist anyone getting off the chair or on the chair. So it becomes, um, you know, quite intense for those guys on on bad days. So we wanted protection. And the other one was the, the an obstacle on top of the mountain like that has a very unique way of drifting snow, depending on the way the wind moves around it, uh, the shape of the building and where the snow drifts. Uh, on top of the mountain, they have a a bit of a problem uh, with scouring, which is when the snow gets blown off and you get sheet ice. 
So we wanted to try and build the form um, so that where the snow deposited on those snow events uh, could be utilised and, and used to uh, build up the sort of skiable area around the chairlift. So I think we accomplished both of those things, which, um, I mean, the first design we sent back was a little bit too new wave for the owners at the time. So with a little bit of uh, a sprinkle of traditional added to there, uh, they came at our design and, yeah, so we got a couple of huts on on the Eagle Express chairlift. That's fantastic. What are, what are some of the key design features of that one, if you can describe elements of it for the listeners? Yeah, well, again, it was um, uh, we tried uh, prefabbing a lot of the parts so that they could be assembled pretty quickly on site. Um, The chairlift operation is a funny thing. They have these big sort of cattle yard looking um, fencing that goes up every day to try and guide everyone into the right place. And a lot of people, you know, skiing or snowboarding is very foreign to a lot of people. So they need sort of all the guidance they can get to to make it to the chair. Um, so, yeah, just the packing away of all that gear also needed to be housed in the hut. Uh, good visibility. So you need to be able to watch. And, you know, again, quite often you referred to the Warren Miller films before and quite often people get sandwiched between the chair and the landing ramp or the loading ramp. So they need yeah, good vis- visibility, access to stop buttons, um, yeah, a, a lot of sort of things for public safety. Again, bit of a recurring theme actually when you start talking about the snow. It's incredibly sharp and incredibly slippery, right? Yeah, yeah, it does get. And it, again, you know, Australian conditions, we get this warm temperatures during the day, everything melts, and then it just sets up like bulletproof ice at night. And spending so much time up there, you've in a way been able to do a post-occupancy evaluation on it yourself. Have you found that the, the snow drift is being contained and the roof form is working as you expected? Yeah, the roof form's working really well. I actually had one of the operators approach me uh, probably 12 months after the first operating season and just say, you know, like it works fantastic, especially um, the protection levels for, for the staff. So, yeah, it's, a, it's just another aspect that you don't think much about of the alpine environment. You get out there and go for a, a ski or, um, you know, there's been guys out at 4 a.m. in the morning trying to knock the ice off everything so the general public can come in and use, yeah, the, the chairlifts or the, you know, um, the infrastructure that we have here. So a lot of those guys, uh, that's who the design was intended for. And it, it, that's worked really well in that particular case. Yeah, to support the the people that drive the resources that 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 make that make it all work and make it possible. It it, it still sort of bewilders me, and I guess you you spend all year round up up there, so you're very used to the the constant economy on some level in in the high country. But perhaps a lot of people think that it's only for one particular season. It's only for winter. What are some of the sustainability or ESD principles that you bring into your designs and that are integral to the projects to help bring down um, the level of embodied resources, the level of embodied carbon or material, something to offset really how much resources go into actually running a ski resort? 
Yeah, so I mean, Cloud9 is um, that's been a really interesting project for us. Uh, we actually involved Ross Harding from uh, Finding Infinity. Um, Ross was uh, set up a matrix for us to to work through. So I guess it, it's it's a funny thing because uh, above the snow line, like in Falls Creek, and I think uh, Mount Hotham is the same. Buller may be slightly different, um, but we. We, we can only lease our buildings. We're still on Crown land. So it was really um, it was really difficult to work through the payoff periods for good sustainable practices, especially when you're talking about a lease that might only be sort of 10 or 12 years for redevelopment. Um, I mean, I guess that's something that sort of needs resort management uh, and the government needs to sort of seriously think about that if their developers are stepping in to renovate and upgrade these buildings on, on top of mountains, um, they need good, healthy, long leases for that payback period. Um, so unfortunately, with Cloud9, a lot of the ideas we started with, um, as far as like heating systems, solar, all those kind of things, making the most of the wind we looked into, uh, a lot of them, the payback period just wasn't quite there for the developer or the owner, uh, the lease owner, uh, in the shorter period of time that they had the lease. Um, but it was, it was good in another way because we shifted our focus to um, waste management. Um, a number of other, you know, the thermal skin of the building uh, became a, a high priority uh, because the more money that was saved on the systems could be focused on the, the actual skin of the building. But yeah, waste management is a huge thing up here. You know, it's you think about all of those thousands of people that are coming onto the top of the mountain, uh, everyone consuming something while they're here. And the waste management, especially uh, for Cloud9 in particular, being at the top of the mountain, uh, A, all of the goods and services that need to be sort of taken up to the building, and then there's the waste and the byproduct which comes down. Um, so we're quite lucky that our uh, uh, the developer and owners of the lease uh, are very it was a high priority for those guys. So we've got some really good efficiencies being made into that. The compacting of waste and um, green waste, especially like the resort management has started to, to put in some good practices for that as well. I imagine all um, that just reduces their operational expenditure as well, right? Yeah, it does. It does. But there's a, there's a really a difficult sort of clash between, um, you know, the pristine environment and where you can use things. You know, for instance, the crushing of concrete, quite a commonplace thing to do. Um, but the byproduct can't always be used in the open environment uh, just because of the sensitive nature of uh, the environment itself. So, yeah, there's there's still a lot of discussion that needs to happen internally between the resort management um, and sort of developers and architects um, or designers such as myself to try and work out the best compromise of, um, you know, what to do with the byproducts and how they're most efficiently used. I'm surprised to hear you mention solar panels. I didn't know you could have them above the snow line. Yeah, well, I was intrigued. I um, I actually um, saw a lift in uh, Croatia, I think it was, 
um, which actually had a series of solar panels strewn between the towers and the lift itself was completely solar operated. Uh, and once I saw that, I actually uh, went to the lift company up here at the time, different owners now, and said to them, you know, like, is this, you know, would this be a possibility? Can we pursue this? Would you guys be happy at looking at it? Um, it Again, there is a lot of problems with it, um, being just the harsh environment, solar panels icing up, uh, the wind factor as well. Um, but it's not to say it can't be done and hasn't been done other places around the world. So that's what we were quite interested in um, uh, at looking at those possibilities. Unfortunately, our particular building or this building, Cloud9, um, is so exposed at the top of the mountain that it just it wasn't a factor that we could sort of um, sort of delve into too far. Uh, but it was good to throw it on the table and come up with, you know, again, looking at those reasons uh, why it can't be done and uh, trying to design around them. And so many learnings, so so much innovation and opportunity for professional growth just being at the at the forefront of the elements and, and technology. I'm, yeah. It, I'm just yeah, really curious about seeing how building integrated photovoltaic is going to go into the future as well, because maybe then you can just integrate into your glazing or into facade systems. Yeah, oh, that would be fantastic, especially up here. Everything's, you know, doing its best to be north facing and sucking the solar into the building. So, yeah, if we could Im impregnate it into the glass, um, you know, at, at a, an affordable uh, and manageable rate, then it, it would be adopted here in a heartbeat. I wanted to ask also about Falls Creek Hotel. Yeah, Falls Creek Hotel was a funny one. It was um, a place that I'd spent a lot of time as a, as a kid in there and they've got these, uh, well, the owner will tell you that they're sort of daggy, old, ornate timber chairs with red leather seats on them, uh, which she was ready to throw out. She was just like, I'm so sick of them. I grew up with them. Um, I'd never want to see them again, but I managed to convince her to keep them because they were just the essence of what makes it an old school um, sort of restaurant and bar venue. Uh, so they did, um, took on board a, a few of my suggestions for the renovation, um, including keeping the chairs. But the, this was a family run business that had been operated uh, for three generations, I think they had three there and um, had a massive stock of old sort of ski boots, like leather ski boots and wooden skis, and which is now all um, proudly on display in the restaurant. Um, but yeah, that was, that was quite a unique one. And this is another amazing thing uh, about sort of living and working in this environment is that being able to try and maintain that history, which is so important for the people that are coming here um, who, and now as well in their third or fourth generation, you know, and still having that same rem reminiscent feeling of going to a bar or dining in the Alpine region and, um, yeah, remembering what it was like back in its day but with a few mod cons in there. All that ephemera, helping people to connect to place in, in the interiors in the, because the external environment in the winter could be so, so cold and distancing and also dynamic. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And this this particular um, venue is actually right in the middle of um, the Falls Creek Bowl. So we, we basically have sort of 
two hubs in Falls Creek. We have the original hub, which is known as the Falls Creek Bowl, where the early pioneers, uh, when they were building the hydro scheme uh, on their weekends, would walk up into this well-protected bowl and that's where they'd camp and uh, that's how Falls Creek came to be. And then we have the sort of the new modern end of town where everyone can park their car and get straight onto the chairlifting and get into the ski area, um, which is called Slalom Plaza. So we've got these two dynamics, this sort of old historical end of town and this sort of new wave end of town. And it's, um, it's a quite, a, quite a nice transition between the two. So we're lucky to have that. That sounds really wonderful. And we'll pop up photos on our Instagram page of all these spaces and moments we've, we've talked about um, after the episode recording comes out so people can come back and, and return. I have to ask about cross-country skiing. All the cross-country skiers will be upset. Um, is So l- last year particularly, I remember last season, there was a, a bit of discussion and certainly a lot of upset about the road being cleared past Windy Corner. Any yeah. updates? What's going on there? Um, so that particular project is in planning, as I understand it, uh, at the moment. Um, yeah, look, it's it's a difficult one, very contentious issue. Obviously, uh, the road has had, in, in that particular section of the road, has had snow on it forever and a day. Um, it's a very difficult thing to understand Um you know, whether that change is going to be for the better or for the worse, I think, until the change happens, uh, if it happens. But one thing I can say in working with the resort management uh, and also just the local team up here, you know, one of um, one of the guys who's pretty high um, within the resort management, and, and in the past there's been many, don't get me wrong, there's not just one, um, are very focused on like a holistic approach to the resort. The cross-country skiing, even for me as growing up in Mount Beauty and going to uh, high school in Mount Beauty, we had a cross-country ski team who was just, most of them were ended up being Olympic athletes, being living so close. So did our um, downhill skiing team, actually. Um, but we also had the downhill skiers formed their own cross-country team and the cross-country skiers formed their downhill team. And that's how we would arrive at our, um, you know, the um, school skiing uh, sports was always with an A and a B team. So we always understood and we always um, respected each other's discipline, you know. And I think that that's really important uh, in this instance is uh, the respect of guys that have been sort of driving through, if it were, to other end of the resort and then heading out into the high country to enjoy uh, what's the areas that are not lifted. So, you know, I think it's it's very important to listen to uh, both both sides of that um, that argument. It's a very difficult thing to manage because the resort is trying to expand into specific areas and the the um, the sort of natural progression is to use systems and infrastructure that we already have in place, uh, which means clearing that road to a specific area where they can then um, manage and relocate some of the facilities that cross-country skiers enjoy. Uh, 
very difficult, but at the same time, um, I did read the brief when it first came out for the development of that area. And uh, in that initial brief, there was uh, it was very important that skier access was always maintained. So even though the road may be cleared, you could still park your car where you have been parking it for many years um, and make your way to those same destinations via new access paths whether it be a skier bridge to cross the road or a skier tunnel, both have been used in the past before. Um, so hopefully that's been addressed in this um, the, the new proposal. It's really good to hear your perspective on the question as well, Andy. I'm mindful of the time and I want to ask my last question, and that's what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Um, what gives me hope is... Um, a person like myself growing up in a small town uh, below the sort of snow line uh, can um, find his way to university and, you know, be exposed to amazing, amazing people, uh, including yourself, as we did at uni, um, and that you can come back into your community and make a difference. I think... That's extremely, extremely important. There is no, um, there is no one who will understand this environment sort of more than yourself and what you got out of it when you're a young kid and seeing the transition and all of those um, sort of factors which can really underpin good, good design, good solutions. Um, you know understanding exactly like your last question, understanding the different demographics that, that visit our area, how unique our environment is. Um, yeah, so I think hope for me lies within the people that are in these communities, um, going out into the world, learning what the world has to offer and coming back and making where we live a better place. That's really beautiful, Andy, a really beautiful and warm point to end on. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Pleasure. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hi, I'm Fiona Lee Maynard and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is what I do whenever I'm anywhere near Seaford Karam High School and Eel Race Road. Oi, 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 oi. IGA, it's shopping nights. IGA, where the price is right. Seaford North IGA, for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker.